It's International Women's Day, and in this episode, we're listening to stories from Lucero Camarena, a trans rights activist. We listen to her stories of uncertain identity, I think I was aware of me being different. becoming who she was meant to be, transition, I always imagined being this, I always imagined being who I truly was, but, um, uh, but now that, you know, that I'm at this point of being very empowered and comfortable, I look back and I could... Yeah, I can't even conceive the idea of being a man, like, personally. And the women that continue to inspire her. But um, I think what speaks to my truth and what is really salient is um, the work that Janet Mock has done. This is the Unapologetic Woman Podcast, and I'm Pauline Vanique. Stay with us. Welcome to the first episode of the Unapologetic Women podcast. I'm your co-host, Donna. And I'm Pauline Vanique. Today, we're bringing you a very special first episode to celebrate International Women's Day and the start of Women's History Month. We'll be listening to an interview we did with Lucero Camarena, an LGBTQ activist from Southern California. Throughout this episode, she'll be discussing her experiences as a transitioning woman, a woman of color, and the spaces she sees or lack thereof for others just like her. So for this first episode, since it's Women's History Month, we decided to interview somebody who was very inspirational to us. And so in today's episode, we want to talk more about Women's History Month and what it means to us. So Donna, what do you think of when you hear Women's History Month? Honestly, Pauline, when I think of Women's History Month, I think of International Women's Day, where I'm excited in the morning to be for it to be International Women's Day. My Google Doodle changes. And then throughout the day, at least someone says, why is there no International Man's Day? And then my day is ruined no no it's not really ruined it's just like another day yeah i feel like i don't really well i don't want to say i don't care but i feel like there has been no significant impact on my life when it comes to women's history month and international women's day all the problems that everyone talks about during those those days or that month i feel like i already know and i feel like not a lot has been done to change marginalized uh the problems for marginalized communities like women of color and lgbtq women so doesn't really apply to me to be honest yeah i don't think because what is the purpose of women's history month is it to educate is it to celebrate um i don't think if it's to celebrate i don't think that's working um and educate i guess i would remember like when I, and like being in elementary school, then Disney Channel being like, oh, is it this like Women's History Month and have like a commercial about Susan B. Anthony or um, or someone else. I don't even have any recollection of being taught about Women's History Month when I was in elementary school. I remember the first time I was like, oh, my gosh, there's a Women's History Month. There's an International Women's Day. I was a sophomore in college. <laughs> so that's how that's how aware I am of these things. But I think our experiences as cisgender women of color would very differently from other women, um, specifically Lucero is trans women of color. So, and this is what she had to say about that. The way that I grew up was different than most kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a trans non-binary woman, uh, I'm still kind of navigating my identity. Um, I was not socialized male, but I um, was also not socialized female, right? Because my entire life, I kind of saw myself, I, I, I see myself, like, as, like, if there was a classroom, right, 
um, of teaching, you know, social gender norms, right? I wasn't ever listening to what the boys' lecture was <laughs> was telling me, right? Um, or I wasn't internalizing that. Yeah. I was always peering into, you know, what the girls' lecture was about, and that's what that's what always spoke to me. And it took me a while to break free of that. So, you know, when we talk about Women's History Month, um, it always to a degree kind of felt like the other mm-hmm. so I'm just beginning to you know, understand like what that means for me um and interestingly enough I think that Women's History Month I don't so much see myself as like reflecting on it as much as I see myself as a part of the cultural shift that is changing you know history for women and what that means right um and specifically for like define you know defining and um uplifting and validating the, the identities of trans women um, because you know with shifts in uh, cultural consciousness of what con- these constructs mean we find ourselves um, being able to self-identify but not only self-identify but exist in the world as women because um, that's who we are uh, and so I think with you know Laverne Cox and Janet Mock and uh, Sylvia Rivera, way, way back, right? No, not way back, because, you know, 1960s isn't too, too far. But um, um, that's kind of, I think, when I feel like my, what's, what really resonates with me, my women's history begins. Um, and, uh, you know, I think all the, the work that, um, you know, the first, second, and third wave feminists have done, mm-hmm. like, definitely benefits me, and I will not discount that, because, you know, if it weren't for them, like, how would I, you know, have the privileges that I have now as women, right? Um, or just as a person in general. So, when did you first realize what it means to be a woman of color? Or do you think you're still realizing it, even now? Oh, it's, it's a constant, like, process. Um, you know, I'm here and three months into transition, and with that said, I think there's such a thirst or, um, I guess, I don't know, social dehydration for, um, (laughs) (laughs) for, like, activists, Mm -hmm. invisible advocates for our community that I just kind of got thrown into it. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not to say that it's, it's a major privilege to be, to represent my community, but, um, Going back to your question, which was uh, what it, you know what it means to be like a woman of color, you know I'm, I'm still learning every day, but um, I think a lot of that arises in uh, aesthetics, right? Yeah. Um, and I obviously internalizing a lot of you know what makes a woman valuable, right? Mm-hmm. What does society um, you know dictate or communicate? To, to women about where our is held and you know a lot of unfortunately a lot of it has to do with our aesthetics our beauty what you know these very superficial aspects that are just a you know one dimension of who we are you know um if barely even that and um and so you know a lot of uh aesthetics evolve around whiteness yeah. um and these different standards that uh, tend to exclude and marginalize women of color. Um, and with that said, that directly um, it, it communicates to us that, you know, that we are not worthy. It communicates to us um, a lot of these uh, really negative things that are, you know, toxic to um, 
the self-empowerment. So I think it's, it's, it's harder to exist as a woman of color because, you know, society is constantly, you know, um, I guess objecting your sense of worth or aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, not only that, but also, um, and it's weird because I'm, I'm still at the point, you know, like, it's, it, it's transition is almost like going through puberty, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it kind of is. Um, but uh, not only that, but there's like that social kind of um, ad- like adapting to, you know, the different messages that I'm internalizing and the way people are treating me. And so it kind of feels like I'm having to take like a one-on-one course on like how to survive as a girl. <laughs> um, and uh, no, with that said, like, oh God, I could never, like, you know, it was funny because transition, I always imagined this. I always imagined it being who I truly was. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, but now that, you know, that I'm at this point of being very empowered and comfortable, I look back and I could... Now, I can't even conceive the idea of being a man, like, personally. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just almost impossible. Even though, like, not that I was one, but I, you know, was forced or, you know, I pressured to perform as one. And also, you know, as a queer, more, more trans femme specifically, women of color, I'm also, you know, noticing a lot of things within the community um, you know, obviously, the with you know white can folks inheriting you know, privileges of access and um, you know financial resources and education and all these factors that are protective, you know, for you know a person living with a queer experience. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the white trans people specifically. Um, are able to go through their transition safely or have mm-hmm. family support, all these different things. Whereas, you know, while communities of color, we have to either create our own families or we um, we end up like falling into these pretty um, despairing conditions. And, you know, so I'm kind of finding that. And also, um, our, I think trans women specifically have this stereotype that you know we're all like extra and that mm, we yeah. are um just overbearing and we just like oh like okay you know <laughs> like too you know like all this really, yeah there's nothing wrong with that and i actually embrace that and power i love it. i love when i'm in a room full of my sisters and we could just be unapologetic women right? yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> is another part of 
you know, our experiences is even just across the board as women of color, uh, we're constantly finding ourselves in order to uh, navigate different situations. Code switching is almost a critical skill. Mm. Um, and that's, that's very complicated in itself. And I don't know how much I can unpack that without being problematic, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, even in academia, like, you know, as a person I graduated from CSD, oh, you know, um, <laughs> you know, you know, but like, that's a different experience. Um, and I could go on and on about, you know, my experiences with women of color there, because yeah. uh, that's where I transitioned. Um, but there's constant code switching in order to, you know, kiss up to my professors, to fit into spaces that were dominated by, um, you know, white folks. So, Donna, I want to ask you, what does being too much mean to you? In, as in terms of a trans woman or in terms of me? So in, 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 in terms of you, like, what do you think being too much means as a woman? I feel like being too much is, means taking up space and being in, like, both sides of the spectrum, whether if you um, very proudly display the, the super feminine sides of yourself or you are too masculine, whatever those two words mean. Um, as, like, as long as being too much means that you diverge too much from the ideal of what society thinks a woman should be. Um, yeah. Like how many degrees that diversion is. Yeah, I totally agree. I think being too much means that not conforming to what a man probably thinks. I've been told I've been too much just by myself. Um, and it's really difficult to figure out what the right amount of enough is as a woman and especially as a woman of color because there's spaces where whatever you say or whatever you do is considered inappropriate or too loud or too rowdy and then there are spaces where it's not enough because it's like you're not doing enough or you're not trying hard enough you're not ambitious enough yeah it's like you have to depending on the room you're in you have to gauge what percentage of yourself you're allowed to show exactly and it's difficult even as like and it's it's interesting we say we say it's difficult but we're totally like cisgender women there's no like we don't have any physical disabilities and i can't imagine what it takes for somebody who is non-binary or who is trans and somebody who does have a disability in these situations in the spaces that they take up in I think that's why 
by the time I got to, you know, junior or senior year, I think senior year when I met you, that was my first break into, you know, AD classes, into anything that I thought that I could use my um, intellectual abilities with, because I didn't think that I had any until that point, and, you know, sis, I was doing pretty well for myself, um, <laughs> but... Yeah, so I'm still internalizing a lot of that. But, you know, at such a young age, I was never... The only thing that I... Uh, since, I guess, uh, gender was kind of a known topic. Like, I didn't allow myself to go near that mm-hmm. because of how traumatic it could have been. So I always saw myself engaging in things that were not gender. So, like, I really liked animals growing up. Like, those, I was completely obsessed. I think that... Like, you know, you know, some kids, like, want to be animals. Like, I was like, <laughs> wild. I was like, I want to be, like, a puppy. You know, like, yeah. yeah it was different. Um, I was different. But it was cute. And, um, but I think to a degree, like, you know, animals don't necessarily, like, yes, there's some kind of, or at least maybe animal behaviorists might say there's, like, a primal kind of, you know, sexual dimorphism, whatever that shit is. And... That's also an argument that can be. There's an argument that can be made against that, but um, there is a vast expansion of sex in the animal. Um, but um, but for the most part, there weren't any performative gender expectations with animals that I saw at that age. Um, so that's how I, I navigated that. But I, I also always, regardless, like because I had to engage in the social world. I was like, I always looked up to the women in my family. And, um, and, you know, and my mom, and I think, kind of imagine to a degree, looking up and like, who would I want to be like? Mm-hmm. And I never wanted to be like my dad or any of the men. I didn't male-identified folks. And I just saw the, um, the kindness and um, the beauty and just like all these positive qualities in, in my mom and the women in my family. Um, and so that was like I think my observation of the lecture, right? That's how I that's how I was able to engage with my womanhood at such a young age is looking at role models, right? Yeah. And maybe you know imagining um, myself in those roles, right? Mm-hmm. I've, uh, and I what I what I realized I suppressed later in life um, was the fact that you know I wanted to be a mom one day. Um, and that was that was a huge breakthrough. And I think that you know, if maybe, I'm not sure how it is for cis women. I don't know your experiences with like you know wanting motherhood or not wanting motherhood. Um, but when the time that I realized, oh my god, I can be a mom one day, yeah. was when like the first time. And I know that men in no means should ever um, validate whether I can like you know, bring a child in the world or have a child or raise a child. Mm -hmm. But, like, the fact that I was able to have, like, you know, an intimate, loving relationship with another person and realize, oh, I could have a family one day. And then I realized I can be a mother. And Mm -hmm. I I swear to you, I broke down crying. Like, I, it was, like, rivers rushing from my eyes and wailing like I was just so joyous like and this was a really vulnerable part of my transition also but like the fact that I had that opportunity something that I so long suppressed because I 
knew I would never have access to that. Like, that was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. It was alone in my room in the dark at 12. Yeah. yeah but, you know, it was so beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and, yeah, so that was just, that was surreal. Yeah. Um, but going back to, you know, again, so that's part of the messages that I was, you know, suppressing. I think a lot of my, of how I navigated womanhood, of, you know, growing up, that was kind of the question, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Is through suppression. Okay. Um, that's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And I realized that, but that, that's how it, that's, and that's how I existed most of my life until a year and a half ago. Um, and... Uh, that's and it was interesting because you know not only that through suppression but um, you know with not having the language and to and to realize that this is who I am mm-hmm. um, not only language but like also um, understanding I guess because like you know when you see a feminine you know a person assigned a male at birth the assignment for that person is oh they're gay if they're feminine you know yeah. like. And so that's what I thought, um, which is complicated. But yeah, so, uh, but also I found myself doing all the quote unquote, you know, and as a Latina and like, and um, Marianismo, is that the word? Or machismo, or what yeah. have you. Um, uh, I would always want to do like the roles of the quote unquote woman would take on right mm-hmm. and so I would <laughs> and I was always like the, you know the helper and that made me feel for some reason really good um and so that's also how I kind of partook or, or celebrated and um navigated womanhood yeah. at that early age and I'm catching up you know yeah. I'm still unlearning a lot of uh toxic things that um, women in our society are fed, um, and not perfect, and yeah, not that I might seem from this conversation, but, um, but that's just my experience. In her answer, she talked about being raised almost without really thinking about her gender or avoiding it, um, and finding herself relating more to the animals than the people around her. Was this something that you could relate to? I don't think on her level. I knew when I was younger that I wanted to be more of a boy than I did want to be a girl just because I grew up with... Growing up, I had two brothers, and then my youngest brother is 12 years younger than me, and my brothers could do whatever they wanted when I was, young, when I was younger. And I was raised in the Philippines, and I remember there was this one time where my older brother, he would always walk home from school by himself no matter what time of the day and I remember leaving school early and and trying to walk home by myself and I made it but I guess that a lot of people had looked for me and a lot of people were like where is she and I got home and I got in trouble for it and they said never to do it again but I was like but why can my brother do it and I can't and my dad was like because he's a guy and you're a girl and I in that moment I just remember like why was I born a girl? But it wasn't never, it wasn't ever like a situation where I wanted to be a boy because that's the gender identity I felt. It just, I wanted to be a boy because of the privileges that they had. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess the first time I realized what it means to be a girl, like in this world, or at least in America, in a Vietnamese 
American family was it was I think it was summer and I must have been about like six seven years old or something and I was just I lived right literally shared a duplex with my cousin so they were right next door we always hung out and um my my cousins there are two brothers and me and my sister just the two girls and I was going up the steps and I don't remember the context of this but my uncle just I think he wanted me to let let me know that for some reason I would like disappoint my dad because if I have children they would not have his last name and it was just like oh I don't know why but I remember it like till this day and it's like oh <laughs> it makes you angry it makes you so angry and yeah sometimes I think about my dad is the only one of his brothers and sisters that doesn't have a son and sometimes I feel sad for him that you work with youth. Is there anything that you would tell your younger self? Um, hey girl, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, what would I tell my younger self? Um, I would, okay, so like a really like um, stale part of myself would be like, girl, here are some hormones, take these before you hit puberty. <laughs> <laughs>
was like all these thoughts that kept me from transitioning um and you know now I'm definitely loving myself yeah. I'm living for myself <laughs> um and I also have like a part you know I met my partner six months ago well um we just like fell in love Im- like just immediately and he'd never dated a trans person um he always he's like the kind of most cliches his straight white passing dude um and I was kind of you know uh not uncertain but hesitant or fearful like okay like how is this gonna work you know like yeah. with his, the privileges he carries but there's been a lot of self-education he's done um which is really important yeah um and you know yeah like that's part of I never thought that I would be loved by someone I could love you know um and so yeah that, I would tell myself that anything's possible how would you want trans people or just LGBTQ people in the future to be represented in media? And how do you think they're represented now? Do you think like, I feel like there's a lot of talk about the community, but I'm not sure if it's like, like I'm, I'm not part of like the trans community. So how, like, I want to hear your opinions on that. I think it's interesting. I think there are, I don't want to say a lot of agents, but there are some agents within Hollywood media that are working to reorient the, the way we shape narratives about, you know, queer and trans people and people of color, right? And you especially see that within the Black and African American community with a lot of the incredible, incredible movies that came out, like Get Out. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, like just like that, like if every movie could be like that framed around identity, right? Oh, I would be the biggest movie buff. Um, <laughs> But, like, there's obviously, you know, there's, I don't think there's uh, enough infrastructure to really make that, um, you know, make films or media um, centering around, you know, the expansiveness of the identities that exist. I think right now, um, with Pose, which is a TV show I encourage you all to watch, um, it's on FX, and it's, you know, it's directed and I guess created by Ryan Murphy, who this is a um, white gay guy, mm-hmm. yeah. um, who's got a history of problematic um, uh, media representations um, in in the work that and he's done. But Pose is a work of brilliance. Pose is something that we need to look towards for how we represent queer and trans people of color, um, because he took the initiative of bringing on trans people of color, right? Like, of not only to star in the show, but to create it, right? Yeah. Um, Janet Mock, who's probably, who, who would be the person that I would talk about if we had, like, that question, or I don't know, of, of who is inspired specifically, yeah. Yeah. Janet Mock would be that, that girl. Um, but Janet Mock co-directed and wrote a lot of the, the, te- uh, the episodes. Um, and so it, it really centers around a uh, 1980s ball scene, ballroom scene. Um, and a good reference for this would be uh, Paris is Burning uh, in an iconic film about uh, trans, uh, black and Latino, um, Latine, Latine, what have you, um, uh, people of color, uh, queer, sorry. Let me get that right. Okay. Black and Latinx queer and trans people. Mm. Yes, that's what it's about. 
think we kind of do a quick one-on-one. Um, it was created uh, because there was a lot of um, uh, queer and trans people of color in you know the inner cities who uh, were needed to create community and families, right? So eventually these families would like kind of get together and they'd come, um, come together to um, compete in these balls that are essentially like competitions and there's like a category and one category would be uh, femme girl realness, right? That's the category I've competed in. Um, and uh, so it would basically be trans women competing to see who passes more. And I know that sounds super problematic, yeah. but it's survival for these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, it's also, one, it's a tradition, and it's also, um, it's part of survival, right? Yeah. Because in the 1980s, like, if you didn't pass, you could get killed. And that's still the situation for many um, Black and Latina um, trans women, yeah, trans women here in the U.S., like, every day, especially... Uh, for the Black and African American community, and waking up and I'm seeing these um, really just horrific um, and violent you know, murders, uh, and it's that that too is just another topic that I'm not going to unpack a lot, yeah, um, because it can be very heavy, and it's, it's not necessarily for for all of you, because like y'all need to hear it. But mostly, for, for personally, for me as a as a woman of color, um, you know, those are often the conversations that we have to have. So in the process of developing the Unapologetic Women podcast, we realize how difficult it is to find information about these women of color throughout history because there's not a lot of documentation on them. So to remedy that, we decided to look into our personal lives and reach out to the women of color in our lives that inspire us. What about her inspires you? I think Lucero is fearless. So we both went to the same tiny high school in the same tiny conservative town and she was unafraid to really come out at her as herself, as her true self. And she was unapologetic about that. And I think being your true self, unashamed about it, not being afraid to really go out there and show everybody is something to really look up to because it is so difficult. And I think that that idea of being fearless is something that doesn't come inherently for a lot of people. I think for a lot of people, that's something you get from looking up to somebody else. And for Lucero, this is who inspires her. I'm not gonna lie, early, you know, Janet Mock does fall into a a very kind of (sighs) palatable, right? To to the mainstream media Mm -hmm. uh, narrative. um, And uh, yeah, narrative of what a trans woman is. Um, now her, you know, living as a black woman, um, she, that, that's definitely a, a layer of, how do I put that's, I guess the layer of her experience that, that does, um, bring more representation and, and, and inclusion, right? But, um, you know, as someone who passes very well and someone who transitioned very early in life, those aren't necessarily the experiences of everyone, but she also, the thing about her is that she's very um, critical about uh, gender, and it is a and it is a construction. But she also shared her story very intimately in her book, Redefining Realness, mm-hmm. and then her next book, Surpassing Certainty. And so, like, I think the reason why is because she was a very early role model for me. You know, 
I saw her as someone I wanted to be like. Um, yes, because partly it was what I could consume at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Being so early into transition, imagining, like, how can I live a safe life? Yeah. How can I live a life that I enjoy? You know, Janet Mock's uh, narrative fit into that. Um, and so with that said, like, I consumed everything Janet Mock early in transition. She was kind of like my lifeline. Um, because, you know, the world that I was living early on, you know, losing family, barely surviving through my academic, um, you know, not quote unquote passing and not being prepared to not pass. Cause there's a difference, you know, it's okay to not pass. Like, and you, you know, that shouldn't be your, like at the end of the day, like that's not going to bring joy and happiness and fulfillment because we will always find something to, to critique within ourselves. But if you're not okay with not passing and you know like that if you're not okay with not if you're not prepared to go into transition and take all those steps um and deal with like the emotional labor of you know like sorry how do I put this you go in with the mentality that I want to pass like right now Mm -hmm. um early transition that's like I did that can be very dangerous mm-hmm. just for one's mental health and that, that's what I experienced I guess this is more of a personal experience and you can edit some of this because I know it's kind of choppy <laughs> but um I'm still processing this right yeah. um but um so yeah so I think that I I kind of had to hold on to Janet Mock's um story um and early on and and but it also spoke a lot to my own experiences early uh, growing up um, but just also, you know, the work that she's done, the advocacy, um, she gave a speech, um, I don't remember specifically where, but, <laughs> um, she, that's where she, I got kind of introduced to one of Sylvia Rivera's, um, speeches. It was, uh, Sylvia Rivera's at a rally, and basically they were excluding all the trans people from speaking at the LGBT event, right? When, you know, trans women of color are the one who you know, catapulted that movement. Um, And so Sylvia Rivera got up and she like, basically, um, she spoke her truth and she told the audience powerful and um, unapologetic things. And that's kind of, that's where I've also derived a lot of my strengths from Sylvia Rivera. We're winding down now. Thank you so much for talking to us. And since we are the unapologetic women podcast we were wondering what do you hope you or other women can stop being apologetic about oh um yeah i I did put some thought of this was like oh my gosh like how do i answer this (laughs) it's like okay um but i think what we can stop apologizing for is what we really want you know um and you know I mentioned it earlier, uh, one of the things that I was always feeling like, uh, I guess bad about or like, no, I shouldn't want that. I'm, I'm sorry for wanting that is, you know, wanting to be a mother, um, mm-hmm. you know, being part of so many like, um, social justice and uh, feminist circles. I think that there's always that sense of like empowerment and, you know, independence and, and, um, I guess, steering your own ship and doing, you know, your own thing and not needing to have a family to validate your worth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And not that I need it for that, but I 
to, you know, to, to be a mother someday, and that's okay, and I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, and, you know, if there are other things that, like, I think I resisted that for, for a long time, and I'm, uh, I'm giving myself the grace to accept that and to, and to love that. Um, and that's, in, and I will not apologize for maybe falling into, you know, the conventional or, quote, traditional, um, I guess, assignment for what a woman should want. Mm-hmm. But that's what I want. And I'm not sorry about it. Yes. But, you know, there are also other things <clears throat> that I think we find ourselves as women apologizing for, right? Like, if there's a promotion at work, um, or something, you know, something that is more geared to, like, the traditional narrative of feminism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, like, want to get a promotion, right, or something. Um, but, like, you shouldn't apologize or feel bad for, you know, taking that initiative. Because that's what you really want. You know, taking <clears throat> the initiative to, um, to, to accept that, to say that, you know, that's, I deserve that. And that's okay. And that's what... I really want um and even if there are other people that want it you know I'm going to um center and prioritize you know my needs and that's okay not only needs but what I deserve you know so one last question um and I think you touched upon this a little bit earlier but we want our audience to be women like us obviously and I'm sure they will be listening to this um so what do you have to say to to those girls who are, you know, lost or unsure about their identity or think that there's, like, no light in sight, basically? Um, I would tell them that at least these are all projected from my own experiences and what I would kind of tell myself, you know? Like, yeah. That's what really harkens um, intimately. So I would tell them, you know, uh, have patience with yourself if you don't find the answers right away or if you don't find yourself right away um because you know this is not just like a transition or a moment in life where you're getting everything together like we're constantly piecing ourselves back together um every day for the rest of our lives and i think there's beauty in that process um, so having patience through it is really important. Um, and not only that, but um, finding this, the, this, the time to self-care, but also the, um, the joy in life throughout the process. Yeah, I think that would be my answer. Um, and, I, and I'm still like working through like, you know, like how do we balance like the conditions and the systems that are in place that you know create these challenges for women while also uh taking you know agency within ourselves to find joy and happiness along the way um yeah that's i guess that may be a question that we can all process um but yeah so for folks who are moving through the world and maybe uncertain or um fearful you know if our 20s that's especially in the 20s is the era of uncertainty and that's one of the scariest feelings right yeah um but just you know hold strong 
patience and seek joy. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Unapologetic Women. Join us in our next episode where we talk to another inspirational woman of color in our lives. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Tweet us, check out our Instagram, or drop us an email. All our information will be in the description, as well as resources pertaining to this episode. Until next time, this has been Donna and Pauline Vanique.